0: Three, two, one. Hi, everybody. It's Rick Torsett, and this is 10,000 Swamp Leaders, a podcast where we have conversations with leaders about what it's like to deal with hard, messy, wicked, or what we call swamp issues here on the podcast. And um, I want to acknowledge that it's been a couple of weeks since you heard from me. I uh, had the good fortune of uh, spending two weeks in Paris and London and the weather was fabulous. The work was great. The food was great. The wine was great. And, uh, I am back now and I'm replenished and ready to go. Today is a a kind of blessing day for me and in my guesting here, because I have a friend, a colleague that, uh, I've known Max, I think for seven, eight years now. And, um, And we do do some work together, full disclosure. Uh, We are uh, partners in crime and certain kinds of work that you're familiar with. And Max is going to get into a little bit more detail here. But let me welcome to the show Max Martinez. Max is the president of Cambridge Leadership Associates, which I'm going to give him ample space to explain what that work is as we go along. So Max, welcome to the podcast and welcome to the swamp. Yeah,
1: thank you, Rick. It's it's truly a privilege and honor to be with you. And uh, I just I love our conversations because I always learn something too. And you have this, uh, I'll I'll toot your horn for just a second. You have this ability to reference and leverage the learning that you've accumulated over the last uh, little while to to make things relevant for folks. So it's it's really a privilege to be with you. Thanks for having me.
0: It's good to be here. Let's do some of that leveraging and connecting here in a moment. But be first, before we get into that, uh, tell people about who you are, You know, whatever you think is relevant for them to know about you in context for the conversation we're going to have would be great.
1: Sure. That is, that's a broad question. Um, and so I could talk about, I suppose, my favorite color or where I'm from. Uh, but let me give you just a couple, couple benchmarks. So I am a white, middle-aged Guy uh, living in the Pacific Northwest on an island with the same island that you live in. Um, I think most critically relative to the work that I've come to, I have been blessed, I think to, uh, sounds strange to say, but to have been born into a family where there was a lot of social complexity. Um, and like many of us who have had experienced uh, experiences of trauma at a young age, that was foundational for some of the work that I later pursued in my life. Um, always knew that I wanted to help people, always knew that I had this uh, kind of pragmatic optimism, but struggled for many years to figure out the best avenue for that, right? How do I leverage my highest and best use in the service of helping others? That was a, that was a core question for me. And so over the years, I've been involved in uh, private practice, private business, rather, um, CEO a couple times over, ran a nonprofit uh, for many years. Um, and then over really about the last decade or so, pursued uh, executive coaching work, and have done uh, a lot of work helping very senior teams and organizations do the messy work of change. And that work has been incredibly fulfilling for me. Not always easy, um, but truly rewarding. Does that uh, give us a start?
0: Yeah, that gives us a great start. Um, and I know because I know your background, um, you somewhere back uh, in your younger life made a decision. And I, as I was doing a little research on Max Martin, I realized I don't know what the fork in the road that caused you to end up at Harvard. But so, uh, I, I think it's relevant for what we know is ahead in a conversation to, um, help people understand, uh, your time at Harvard and the influences had on how you are doing what you're doing today. Sure. Yeah, the, the road the road to Harvard, you know,
1: and and I and again I feel blessed and privileged to have had that experience. Not not all of us can do that, but I, I think the road to that experience was also pretty non traditional. Um, and I'll and I'll just give you the kind of quick high level summary of how that happened. So for about twenty years, I, I actually after undergraduate school in the Midwest, I'm from New Hampshire originally. Uh, undergraduate school in the Midwest, um, I thought I would become a U.S. Marine Corps chaplain. Hmm. Uh, have a kind of um, spiritual upbringing and bent to me and actually was uh, was was received into a full ride program in Boston University Seminary, um, where I started for about three months after a short stint in, in the corporate world, and was utterly miserable. Uh, I, something about the program didn't sit well with leveraging um, the experience I knew I needed to to, to have to, to help folks. And so after a quick stint there i ended up through a kind of a fortuitous circums- set of circumstances ended up working for a serial entrepreneur with a large portfolio of family companies and that work was it was a phenomenal odyssey for me because it gave me pragmatic grounded experience in building businesses in building nonprofits in working in disruptive enterprises and along that journey it was about a 20 two-year journey, um, I, I began to notice some interesting threads as I worked with multi, a multitude of companies in different spaces and in different industries as an insider. There was a common theme between the successful companies, of which there were three or four that I worked with, um, <clears throat> and, the, and the unsuccessful companies, of which there were also a couple. And I always, I always believe that you learn a lot more from, from the failures and the mistakes. But the common theme wasn't marketing marketing or sales or product or engineering it was always and consistently leadership so you could take a very successful company supplant it with ineffective leadership and actually see the company crumble or drive it into the ground likewise you could take a struggling company supplant it with really effective behaviors that form the bedrock of leadership and pivot it and become successful and I, and i saw this close close to my heart and close hand in many cases and It was after that, about 15 years of seeing that, I said, that's interesting to me. That thing called leadership, those sets of behaviors, that's fascinating. And so I looked near and wide um, and found this program at Harvard. And I said, that's what I have to do. studied with an individual named Ron Heifetz, who you know as well, um, who is considered the father of um, adaptive leadership, right? Namely, the study of how do individuals, teams, and organizations do the difficult work of, of change and innovation. Um, and so that was a mid-career journey for me. Um, and from there I continued, I I actually left that was asked by Ron to run his leadership consultancy, Cambridge leadership associates. And at the time my wife and I, uh, had a third baby on the way. And we said, we don't want to live in New York city and, uh, made a life change to move West. Um, and I continued in my, in my for-profit work, but as, as life has a way of happening, you know, things come full circle. And about four years ago, ended up purchasing CLA and, and have expanded that platform. Um, it's, it's been a blessing. So yeah, the journey
0: is, is not linear by any stretch. All right. So, uh, so let's get into, uh, this, some specifics here around. So you, at that point when, when you had the insights about the the potency of, of good leading and how it can affect the trajectory of an organization and vice versa, uh, and then you had the opportunity to understand uh, what Ron Heifetz was uh, advocating at Harvard in, in, in the form of adaptive leadership. Uh, what is it about that work that has you has your attention? What is it about that work that had you decide to take on CLA as a president? And we should we should say that when you took it on that organization needed a boost. It needed good leadership. Yeah. Um, so what is it about that? Because there's lots of places you could have gone for leadership work. Yeah. What is it about adaptive leadership that draws you in? And why does that work matter to the world, in your opinion?
1: Yeah, great, great question. Um, well, you you and I have this conversation a lot. And I think it's important to say that adaptive leadership is a set of tools, practices, and frameworks but it is it is a set uh, of tools and practices and frameworks that doesn't exist in isolation. There are many tools, practices, and frameworks in the market in the broader market of ideas to help folks think about leadership. Um, so, in, in that context specifically, I, you know, it, it spoke to me um, as a as a youngster, as someone um, growing up in formative years. I, I think there were some catalyst moments that helped me relate to that work in ways that were for me, very profound. And the catalysts were never, uh, easy, which is to say that, you know, experiences of, of of trauma or complexity or uncertainty VUCA as the military calls it, right? Volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. These things often induce complex, um, responses. And so, as I, as I began my formal study in this topic of, of both change and, uh, including adult development, how do individuals, uh, make decisions, create meaning and think about purpose. This is a, this is a a practice called adult development. Um, there were for me in, in very simple terms, there were primarily two catalysts for, for human behavior change. One was crisis, right? So when we encounter crisis, if, if I, if I write with my right hands, right or i brush my teeth with my right hand and i break my wrist then i'm forced to adapt i'm i'm literally forced to, to use my left hand that's a very difficult process right short of that i have to be very intentional so either crisis or intentionality are often the catalysts for behavior change and most often it's crisis unfortunately right and so as i as i as i had many experiences both in my childhood and then professional career of seeing people exposed to crisis right? I thought, Hey, can you, can you short circuit that a little bit? Can you leverage intentionality to get ahead of that curve and to support effective behavior change for teams and organizations? And I suppose Rick, for me, you know, at heart, I'm, I'm probably a teacher. Um, uh, and, and I think that work has always been in my soul. So to some extent, this question of behavior change, the pragmatic side of, of how do you take um, an idea and leverage it for behavior became very relevant for me because so many, as you know, so many of the folks in our space do what I call edutainment, which is mostly entertainment with a little bit of education spiced in. But, but when you're in a pragmatic context of dealing with messy problems, entertainment doesn't mean very much, mm-hmm. right? It's how do you, how do you get from point A to point Z with all of those messy pieces in the middle? So pragmatic behavior change becomes really critical. And the habit-forming tendencies is, are, are part of that, of course.
0: All right. So, so, so I have to ask you here. Uh, so we've been in this conversation for uh, about 12 minutes. And you've used the word pragmatic about five times. So let's uh, help us understand, because I think... I think I know what you're trying, what, why that's important to you, but expand on that because that seems to be a, a kind of central compass point for who you are and therefore how you go about your work.
1: Wow, great, great pickup on that. And I guess I, I do use that word a lot. Um, <clears throat>
0: uh,
1: I think it I think it comes from my my experience in history, uh, being an operator in, in a corporate environment and also being on the ground, with folks who are who are in the mess, who are in the swamp, right? Because when you're when you're talking, when you're either in that experience, as I was, certainly in the disruptive technology space for about eight years, um, or when you're working with individuals, senior executives, or board members, even uh, private equity, venture capital, all of these things, including in the for-profit and non nonprofit space, have complexity that is often um, invisible at first. Right. And so when you, when you actually get in the midst of that, um, it can feel very isolated. Uh, it can feel lonely. It can feel like you're in a vacuum. Like there's no, you're, you're,
0: you're you're saying lonely in the context of somebody who's leading or managing. Right. Right. That's right. That's right. And so the way
1: through that, right. Unfortunately, you know, the way through that, the only way through that is, is through that. So how do you how do you begin to navigate that in a way that supports those around you to make effective decisions? Um, I often tell my kids, "You either master your decisions, or your decisions master you." And and this is this is a truism that I've adopted in my life because those downstream impacts of our decisions are are extraordinary, absolutely extraordinary. So I think for me, you know, having been an operator and having experienced the, the challenge of leading from the messy swamp or, or attempting to practice leadership from the messy swamp, you realize that um, you know, great theories don't mean much, right? That, that you actually have to do things, that you actually have to practice things in a way that have relevance, that have meaning, that have connectivity to to, to progress in organizations. So I think for me that you're right, that, that is a thematic keynote in my experience, that if it's not grounded, it's, it's not useful. Um, if it's not connected to our behavior, it's not useful. Uh, so the work of helping folks connect effective behavior to making systemic and incremental gains in the pro- in the practice of leadership is is for me, you know, a, a life work. Um, and, and I'll say one more thing, if you don't mind, I, I think that oftentimes we think of leadership or the work of organization transformation as this. Um, kind of revelatory or, or mystical thing. And the reality is it's it's not, it's kind of like, you know, learning an instrument, there are stages of learning an instrument, but those stages are, (laughs) you know, if you're committed to practice, take time. And the developmental journey on that is not overnight. We have thresholds of growth and progress, but my gosh, that transformation is incremental. It's a, it's a two to three to 4% compounded return year over year, if we're consistent. Right. um you know the one of the one of the great examples warren buffett uh, was at a i may have shared this example with you before he was at a symposium celebrating i think it was fortune mag or forbes magazine's 100th anniversary and someone from the audience asked him they said warren you know the stock market this is a few years ago the stock market's trading at 17000 where will it trade at in another 100 years so 100 years from now where will the dow jones be and without missing a beat he said well over a million Right. And the audience laughed. They actually laughed. And yet he, he, this is why he's the Omaha, you know, the, the, the sage of Omaha, right. Whatever the the catchphrase is for him, because he understands that compounded interest has this incredible exponential impact. Right. So in the same way that in the markets, right, he he was actually being pessimistic. Average stock returns are 7.8% or 8%. He was projecting, you know, five and five and a half percent. So the idea connected to human behavior is actually similar, right? If we could see incremental gains of three to four to five percent and we commit to that growth over time the compounded impacts to our organizational life is they're astounding absolutely astounding
0: All And right, I've so seen I want to yeah I want to come I want to come back to this premise you're putting forward about leadership as a practice Okay. We, we need to return to that because I, I agree with you about the not only the, the importance of it but the reality is that that's how development happens yeah um, and we want to help people a little, think a little bit about what is the design of their leadership practice perhaps in our conversation but before okay. we do that uh, it's been my experience and and uh, and it's well documented and you know this and Ron's written about it and Marty Linsky his partner has written about it. Is that uh, one of the biggest mistakes that leaders make is misdiagnosing the problem, and yeah. uh, and the the importance of problem diagnosis is that once you've arrived at some conclusion about what it is, you deploy resources of organizational resources, tie money, people, and if you've got it wrong, those are gone, mm-hmm. and if you're the the leader or authority figure who actually uh, deployed those resources, your credibility has been seriously undermined inside the organization and maybe with stockholders, stakeholders outside. Uh, my premise is that part of the reason we're culpable uh, to that situation is that we grow up in a system where we're rewarded and recognized for knowing answers to problems. I agree Educa- with Education does that for us. Uh, our early career jobs do it because that work tends to be pretty black and white and we can achieve goals and outcomes. But as you progress in your development in in an organization and a structure to management and leading, um, those problems naturally, by the nature of the elevation, are messier and more complex than they were at a lower level. Yeah. So, talk a little bit about um, the importance of and what's involved with developing as part of your practice the ability to diagnose a problem more accurately than we're likely predisposed to do? Great question. Wow. Um, before we go
1: there, if you don't mind, I'd I'd like to posit, uh, just a, a a real quick definition of leadership if you don't mind, because I, I think that will help set some context and to, to the conversation. So, um, and, may, and you've covered this in previous podcasts, but but my definition has an acronym and I'll give it to you real simple. It's L equals FOO, F-O-O. Leadership equals the facil- facilitating the output of other people. And you could add a W at the end of that for the sake of the work. What does that mean? So you said leadership is a practice. So facilitating by definition is a, is a set of behaviors. It's action, right? So it's a set of behaviors that requires, right, hopefully intentionality for in theory output, which is to say results, some outcome that you can look at. And ideally for the sake of other people in the context of the right work. So if we have that understanding of what real leadership looks like, it has nothing to do with our titles, right? In fact, it also allows us to to practice this at any stage of the organization. So, you know, to your, to your question about, about that trajectory of, of diagnosis or practice in that it's, it's kind of akin to, you know, science tells us that uh, icebergs are barely visible from the surface, right? So if you look at the mass of ice and what part of an iceberg floats, we only see 10% of an iceberg and 90% of that's floating out of the water. So the Titanic was the classic ex- experience of this lived experience of this of this phenomenon, right? And that's very much like like human experience as well. That oftentimes in organizational life, we really only account for about 10% of what we see. So, from a developmental lens, right, we have to go below the surface of the water, metaphorically speaking, we have to be rigorous in our assessment. Okay. And what does that mean from the standpoint of practice and leadership? I think it means opening the aperture, opening our sight lines, enhancing our perception, increasing our sensitivity to the noise in the system. So, from a pragmatic standpoint, it's a little bit like going into a doctor's office, right. And saying, Hey, Hey doc, my elbow hurts. And, and the doctor says, she, she says, well, let's get you right into surgery now. And you say, wait, wait a second. I want a second opinion. Right. Uh, she says, no, I've seen this before. Let's go to surgery. So this would not be good. Right. you you'd, you'd have second doubts, second sets of questions around the competency of, of the doctor. Instead, you'd say, Hey, let's take an X-ray first, or how about an MRI, or let's, Let's, you know, feel around for breaks, let's diagnose this thing, right? And so trained professionals, certainly in the technical sense, have various forms of diagnosis, right? Ways that they can investigate for further insight, uh, what's below the surface of the water. And I think in leadership, we don't do that. I agree with you. I agree with your assessment that, you know, so much of our reward systems create um, kudos and competencies and provide credit for me-centric behavior. And interestingly, I think that's the tie-in to adult development. So we know that adults that make decisions based on me-centric behavior tend to miss the 90% below the water, right? right? So yet later stage development, when we're talking about people that, that create meaning through a, a, a slightly wider aperture, right? Begin to think of others in the context um, of the, the holistic and the organizational uh, parameters, right? And so from that standpoint, What does diagnosis look like? Well, unfortunately, I I think the academics who um, suggest that trait theory is a way to go, I think they get it wrong. Okay, so just a quick snapshot. Trait theory says that if we look at famous leaders of all time, we can copy their traits and emulate them, and then we, too, can be successful leaders. Uh, That doesn't work. And I I think that doesn't work because none of us live in 1863 anymore. We're not facing... Uh, a civil war like Abraham Lincoln was right. So, what this means is that every situation is unique, every context is different, and in that sense, leadership has to be stage appropriate. It has to be context relevant. So, what's relevant for a senior corporate uh, vice president, you know, of a large company, multi-billion-dollar company, is very different from what the reality of a uh, of an executive, you know, at a small nonprofit in a local inner-city school district needs to face. Very different dynamics right? And so it's really hard to say, you know, what do you look for? Because the context is different. Now, I think there are some best practices that we could talk about that. If that yeah. Make so
0: let's, sense. let's, let's do that then because, uh, <clears throat> you know, one of the, one of the goals of the podcast is to, uh, for me is to recognize that there are people who are younger and less experienced in this conversation than you and I might be, or other people who've been on the show. Um, but they have aspirations and goals to uh, be effective leaders. And a lot of them have chosen to um, work in very complex situations. Mm -hmm. And so I imagine that maybe they'll happen across this conversation with you and I walking in the park and say, what's this 10,000 swamp leaders thing? And who's this Max Martinez? So I'll give it a listen. And so my goal here is, is to Hopefully at the end of their listening, they will have picked up a couple of things that they could use. It strikes me that one of the things that we could help them with is in this context of a practice and in this context of developing better diagnostic skills, uh, what can we suggest to them as, to your point, an action or a repetitive action or a series of actions that starts to build the diagnostic muscle so that they're more effective at it than they currently are? What can you give them yeah. that helps
1: there? Great. Well, that's great. Well, I'd love to hear your answer to that too. But I think, um, you know, we can learn a lot from psychology. We can learn a lot from effective practitioners of leadership. Um, and some of those distilled lessons include, and I'll, and I'll just highlight a couple maybe. Um, we could dive into these individual, but we've talked, you've talked on your podcast before about the metaphor of the balcony, right? So there's actually some baseline science behind what that means. So the, the metaphor is, Hey, we spend 90% of the time on the dance floor, right? Which actually limits our sight line. We can see in a six foot radius effectively, if the dance floor is crowded, how dan, do we take- dan, dan,
0: dance floor could be the actual office or the uh, the shop floor right. or those places where the right. work gets done.
1: That's right. Yeah. The engaged practice of behavior necessary to drive organizational life forward. Right. Um, How do we get off the dance floor? So how do we take a step up to the balcony and spend some time? And again, that time is not very long, but spend some time broadening our aperture. So the science around this is partially about pattern breakage. So oftentimes in organizational life, what we want to do is disrupt the flow, uh, 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 the traditional flow of movement. So we, we actually create disruptions in our pattern behavior. And what that does for both ourselves, as, as in the metaphor of getting on the balcony, as well as, um, you know, the people around us, is that it, it causes them to, to, to see something new. And this is actually, I, I'm, I love these conversations because what we realize is that leadership is multidisciplinary. So there's actually application here to the philosophy of aesthetics. If you, if you, if you take any philosophy classes, aesthetics is one of the branches of philosophy and there's this great debate across philosophers around the science of creativity. How does creativity actually happen? So I know this sounds tangential, but let's talk about that real quickly. It's the proverbial Newton uh, having the apple fall on his head. Okay. That insight, right? That insight is powerful that he had around gravity. That story didn't actually happen, but the premise is behind the science of creativity and insight is actually first create some mastery, create some practice of mastery. If you're an artist, then, then master line drawing. If you're a musician, become excellent at the trumpet, right? Because that allows you the, the opportunity to begin to explore new territory. So develop a sense of mastery. That would be a, That would be one lesson from this, right? Second is have the problem in mind. What is the concern and challenge that you're actually faced with? So you're actually absorbing the question, the same kinds of questions that keep us awake at night, right? That's actually an important part of the process of creativity. We call that incubation, right? There's actually a, neurologically speaking, there's a, a period of incubation that our brains have to go through where we're not directly confronting the problem. And typically, if you've ever had this experience where you're, you're in a conversation and you and you think of something you want to say, and then you forget moments later, And and the harder you try to remember what you were going to say, the harder it is to remember. And then the second you incubate and and distance yourself from that thought, you say, oh, I remember. I remember what I was going to say, right? So this actually happens in our experience. And the metaphor to leadership is actually very similar, which is to say, be in the work, absorb the work, understand the context, wrestle with the questions, right? Incubate. But then allow that, so that's the, that's the balcony, then getting to the balcony, allow that time as a practice, a physical practice of separation to, to create insight. And this, this does happen, by the way, when we're intentional about it. So, right, right? Go, go ahead.
0: Well, I was just going to say, I think that <clears throat> for a lot of people, they're going to understand this dance floor balcony as a premise. Uh and I can easily imagine them going, okay, great. So I go to work, I'm there eight hours a day, whether nowadays it's like we are right now on Zoom or in person, which is an increasing consideration for people. What's my strategy for actually putting myself on the balcony? And I think that from a pragmatic standpoint, to answer the question you asked me, um, because this comes up frequently. Is I do think that there's a physical aspect too. Sometimes you literally need to extract yourself physically from the dynamic of the situation you're working on, whether it's in your team or whatever. You need to get away from it. You could take a walk around the building. You could journal. You could write. You could. Um, I think oftentimes it's useful to have thought partners that are not part of the organization who don't know what the work is. Uh, but you trust them and you trust their point of view and they're good listeners and they're willing to hear you out and then maybe provide you with some thoughts and ideas. So that because what you're talking about is at the end of the day, the work still gets done on the dance floor. You must return to that place of work and mobilize your team and get going and, and make some progress on the things you're working on. Yeah. Um, I, I think another question that you and I've talked around or talked about, and I know Ron talks about it, and I use it in everything I do, is the leaders, the person who's choosing to lead, their, the the question to ask themselves: What's my contribution to the mess I'm trying to solve? Right. I e what's my right. blind spots? What are the things I'm assuming that are just not so? Yeah. And I think that that um, for somebody out there who's thinking about where do, where do I go do, those are decent places to begin to do that extraction that yeah. you're talking about and, uh, and get some grip on it as well.
1: It's great. And I, and I might add, you know, one more point, which is, which, which uh, is actually part of the balcony work, but it, it feels risky. And that is, um, you know, we we often don't spend enough time with the detractors in the system, right? Right. We often don't spend enough time with opposition, right? So the folks that have different perspectives within the organization, um, or, or society, if it's a cultural movement, for example, uh, we tend, we tend to be homogenous in our thinking. And unfortunately, without getting into the trenches to really leverage understanding and to create conversation where that understanding is revealed and transferred, we're, we're not, we're not doing it. I remember one of my mentors, uh, was, was consulting years ago to the head, the prime minister of an African government, um, and there was a riot in the street. There was a, a potential for civil uh, unrest, and there were some massive protests building in the in the community. And it got so bad that the protesters were were basically slamming on the palace gates. Uh, and and my mentor was asked by this prime minister, you know, what what do we do? And he said, you need to go down to the gates and talk to the protesters. And 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 the prime minister said, but I might be hurt. And my mentor said, "Well, that's the price we pay for understanding the perspectives we need to understand. So so he didn't go down. and and my mentor did. My mentor down walked down to the front of the ga- palace gates and said, talk. let let us talk, right?" And so we don't do that. We don't do that for for many reasons. Fear of reprisal, um, because it's it's difficult to have those conversations uh, because it's risky. Um, and yet therein lies so much of the, uh, of the effective diagnosis. That I would
0: also create. add the other part that's one of the other parts is there is I'm not sure I can handle the conversation I'm about to have. Right. Great. You know, that inside me, I'm not set up well enough to deal with this level of intensity. Yep. All right. Well, so, yep. so, so knowing that we are going to do this, we we've had this thing scheduled for about 10 days. Uh, I walked into a grocery store over the weekend that you're very familiar with here on Bainbridge Island, and as I'm, I'm walking out of the grocery store, a big guy's coming towards me, and he's got a T-shirt on, and it says on the T-shirt, against all authority. And I just start laughing, and I said, oh, brother, that is so far off base. <laughs> All right, so so therefore, that's my segue to uh, I think another important distinction. We have limited time to be able to get into this thing called adaptive leadership, so I do want to cover a couple really fundamental pieces here. You've covered the diagnosing and all of that. Uh, there is a massive difference around what leadership is in the in the context of adaptive leadership and the work that Ron and Marty did. and it's juxtaposed against this concept of authority, and they have very specific distinctions of that as well. So for those people who are um, not quite as far along on the adaptive leadership road as you and I are, let's begin by just making clear what those distinctions are. What's the difference between authority and leading, and why, 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 why do we need both of them?
1: Yeah, great. Well, I i've seen t-shirts like that before too and uh you know it harkens back maybe to the movements in the 60s and 70s where bucking bucking authority was sort of the that, that was the norm right yeah, um,
0: yeah I, I might i might add he did look like a 60s hippie but i didn't want to put that
1: in. <laughs> well it's great though because you know there, there's actually a lot of value in culture counterculture movements and, and those kinds of re- revolutions so to speak but uh You know, when we, when we just let's take ourselves, for example, right? So the human condition for us uh, on this earth is, is pretty consistent in the sense that when we're all born, right. As, as mammals, as, as a species, uh, human beings, homo sapiens, we are fundamentally dependent upon adults for survival, literally um, for, for years, at least a couple of years physically. Right. So compare that to most mammals like a whale or a giraffe, right? A giraffe can walk within 17 minutes of of its birth and, and yet humans take years. So we develop these very complex relationships to authority, right? We, we, we need them. They serve, they help us survive. They nourish us, they protect us, they guide us. Um, and yet somewhere along our adolescence, um, or if we aren't fortunate enough to have loving parents, uh, we encounter something that looks very different from that, right? Authorities end up abusing us or hurting us. Um, we begin to learn that perhaps we can't tr- trust all authorities, right? And, and and therein lies the complexity that we have as a species with this idea of, of power, power dynamics, authority dynamics. And some of us, we become afraid of authority, right? We bow down to it. And some of us do the opposite. You know, we 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 rebel against it. Um, classic teenage rebellion coming of age tales, right? So so humans have this inbuilt complexity to these authority dynamics. And so the really critical thing for leadership is to have healthy relationships to authority, right? To respect authority enough for the services that it provides, but so not so much that we can't actually move through difficult challenges. Because the reality about authority is that when the challenge gets messy, authorities have no additional clarity around how to solve problems, because the, the sole function of, of authority is to guide, direct and protect. Right. And that works really well in times of stability. It works really well when, you know, if you're a, if you're a, a member of a pack uh, or a, a tribe or a pack, like wolves, for example, travels at travel in packs, wolves have done and had common behaviors for thousands of years. It's worked very well, right. Until humans came along and threatened their existence. So those behaviors of stability and authority work really well for the most part. But the problem is, right, when you introduce complexity, something drastically different,
0: ecological change. Okay,
1: so, all right. right? So
0: let's, let's let's pause there and we'll yeah. go to there. But let's yeah. just back up a second and dig yeah. a little deeper into uh, direction, protection, uh, and organizing, you know, g- getting yeah. the systems right. So, so help people understand so they can see. Because I think… Uh, A a way that I talk about this often is that the organizational chart is a map of authority. It's not a map of leading. Right. Because a lot of position descriptions in the org chart have very explicit descriptions of what the levels of authority are for that position in that system. Yeah. Which is to say that if you inhabit it and you leave today and I step in tomorrow, I inherit a certain amount of formalized authority based on the position description. Yeah. Yeah. And it's in line with those elements that you just described. Where are we going? Uh, what's what's the design of the way in which we're going to get there, and, and to what degree do I have to protect the system and the people to so that they can do work? Right now, you both, you and I both know I can accrue some informal authority based on how I treat people, either poorly or to their benefit. But there, as you're saying, there is a limit to that, especially when you run face into complex, messy problems. Mm-hmm. But in the work of adaptive leadership, it's important. I think one of the great contributions that Ron and Marty uh, realized, and I know that they weren't necessarily the originators of this, was to be able to separate for people so they had a better way to take action on right. this distinction between: to what degree do I have authority in the system, and to what degree do I get the lead in the system? Right. Yeah. Wow. You know, because so- because, because they're because what we what I'm going to say before you say it is uh, therefore, if, if that's the case, if you're a listener, what is leading and leading really fundamentally begins in my world is a choice in an activity rather than a role in a position.
1: Wow. Well, well said.
0: And yeah, we, I'm not, we, we see, but, we see a lot of social change that begins with people who have really no authority, but right. have chosen to raise their hand and they're trying to get people to come along with this idea that they're putting forward. Now we've seen it. For good, and we've seen it for bad. Yep. But we often see it from a position and a person for whom, inside the whatever that organizational culture they live in, they don't seem to have the requisite authority to be doing what they're doing. But there they are. Right. Yeah. So how do you so so then help people then harmonize the utility and value of authority that they have in the organization with leading yeah given right. that they're not the same well maybe maybe we'll use
1: a few different words but but let me let me add to that that i think as you pointed out you know every job description is a form of authority wherever you find that job description in the organization you can be the janitor and you have authority over the grounds of the school and the cleanliness of the of the facilities right so right. you have that authority and and the and the challenge with this is that if we if we don't provide if we don't provide those services well, typically societies or employers will say, we're going to remove that authority from you. You're fired. You didn't keep the facilities clean, right? And and so I think fundamentally, it's important to say that this distinction, as you pointing it out, between authority and leadership is foundational in explaining how so often we find folks in positions of authority that we call leaders that don't do anything that looks like leading. And how someone like a like a Greta Thunberg, right? on the global ecological movement, who's, what was she, 12 years old? I mean, exceeding her, her authority, right. And doing incredible things to create movements um, and to, and to inspire others toward a change of consciousness. So this idea, right. That in some ways leadership is distinct from authority. I, I, I've been using these terms lately that leadership is really about distributed agency. So what does that mean? Agency is the idea that we have the potential and the capacity to impact others, to make decisions that are independent, uh, potentially to make decisions that impact other people, right? And if that's distributed at any layer of the organization, then that means, as you say, Rick, right, that that each of us can provide the services of leadership, whether we're a janitor or a superintendent of a school. And that analogy holds true, because if we think about something that's, you know, very relevant in today's society, teen suicide prevention. You think about, you know, who has a bigger impact? Well, a superintendent might be able to marshal resources and create programs district-wide, but a janitor is on the front lines and hears a child crying in the bathroom, right? So think about the impact of a janitor in the context of leadership for preventing suicide of teenagers, right? Context matters. Location matters um, distributed agency is really about how do we, how do we intervene in systems to create, uh, upside change All right. movement. All
0: yeah. Right. So let's, let's, uh, let's work with this then. Okay. Uh, 10,000 swamp leaders is also a, to use your word, a pragmatic conversation, Yeah, I love <laughs> it. trying to help, trying to help people of any age cho- who are choosing to lead to, to be more effective. Mm. So, It also strikes me that somebody with some decent amount of authority in the organization and a willingness to lead and to follow your uh, uh, description of of distributing, the first place to go to work is agency of the next level of people that report to me Mm -hmm. to free them and permission them to take more leadership into their hands, to make choices and to create a space where it's safe to fail because you're going to fail oftentimes when you're leading. Yeah. And, and also therefore a, a space that says when, no matter what the outcome was, let's collectively or individually gather one-on-one or as a group and find out what worked, what didn't work and how can we all benefit from this so we can grow yeah. the agency of the, of the culture of the organization of leading. Yeah, yeah. So what's your, in your experience with Cambridge Leadership Associates working with organizations for whom this is a goal, Yeah, what have you learned about how to do that kind of work so that it works? And also, what have you learned about how it doesn't work and maybe in part because you misdiagnosed how it worked? Yeah. Wow. Great question. And I'm
1: and I'm thinking about that in the context of some clients and some pragmatic examples um, because I think that helps us illustrate, you know, the ideas that we're thinking about here.
0: Um, and, and, and Max, Max, when you just uh, as a point, when you give an example, obviously not naming your organization, start right. with the challenge that they were facing that brought you into the conversation in the first place. Why? What was going on for them that said maybe, just maybe, these guys at CLA can help us because we can't help ourselves right now.
1: Sure. Well, well, the, and a very obvious there's, there's many, right. Um, I could talk about, you know, public utility districts and energy distribution. We could talk about, uh, the UN uh, agency in the UN that helps children, uh, in the East Asian countries with resource distribution. We could talk about, you know, th- this is the, the fantastic purse that I have to be able to see a lot of patterns across organizations. Let's, let's talk about, um, let's talk about A nonprofit that's local to Seattle that works with homeless youth. Okay. So here's an organization that is resource, resource constrained, certainly in the COVID context, operating in unprecedented times and homeless youth, it turns out in the Northwest is a big problem. Kids uh, underage who literally have no home. Right. And so how do you, how do you both help them create stability so that they can learn and become functioning uh, members of society, but also, how do you help leadership teams create the context that helps the organization do that at scale? Right. Right. And yeah. So that, there, there's an example, right? And I and I think so much of what you've just said is is so true. I I would call that in shorthand, you know, the, the work of leadership in in part is about creating a powerful holding environment. What does that mean? A powerful holding environment a holding environment let's let's use a metaphor of a pressure cooker and you're familiar with us talking about this right but a pressure cooker is an amazing device it can cook a roast in you know a fifth of the time and it works by by literally forcing the, the heat into the fibers of the meat if you're cooking a roast right and so to do that you have to have a steel vessel that is secure if the heat and pressure get too high this is this is a risk the 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 pressure cooker the instapot could actually explode right? So the metaphor here in organizational life is that the holding environment and typically in the senior leadership team, board of advisors, board of vectors, board of directors, excuse me, that holding environment needs to support the ability to handle the heat, right? What does that mean? It means that can we deal with the tension, stresses, pressures of change and loss in a way that doesn't isolate people, that contains the, the risk and the threat, and that helps organizations continue to thrive. So we get into another adaptive leadership concept called, for lack of a better term, productive zone of productive disequilibrium. What is that point in the organization where you can raise the heat high enough to get people to do the work? Remember we talked about crisis as a catalyst for behavior change, right? But not so high that you threaten the system. And in this case, with the local nonprofit that I'm thinking about, right? The organization already had an extraordinary amount of heat, resource constrained, mission critical, life-saving responses, and the exhaustion was unbelievable, right? So in that case, creating a holding environment where people could lower the heat became absolutely critical, right? So some of that is, how do you support team dynamics so that we can have real conversations that don't explode? These sound small and incremental, and yet they're absolutely crucial to supporting wide scale change because if the senior leadership team can do it right then they can distribute that agency to their direct reports in many cases um you know another another uh example for that team is with senior leadership driving effective change how do you then uh broaden that mission to the participants in the programs right and so there's incremental pieces that that are part of that work too yeah, unfortunately it's, it's, it's not you know it's, it's unique to every context it's unique to every organization
0: yeah. And and I think in your description to make it explicit for people is that holding that container, that holder space that you're describing um, is an act of authority. There are people for whom they can cons- construct that. And therefore, part of the reason they're doing that is to make sure that it's going to be safe for people to have these conversations and explore the challenges they're facing so that they can actually make progress on this issue. Without it either blowing up, or you know losing the heat and nothing happens. Meaning that's your. I think your example is a, a, a wonderful example of this of this uh, dynamic dance that takes place between the people in authority who are also choosing to lead and give other people an opportunity to lead. But by by doing the things that you said, create the container, make sure it's safe, uh, invite people in, structure the process. So by uh, they are able to actually deal with this stuff in a in a p- proper and healthy way so that be all I'm guessing all for the point of figuring out what can we do better more effectively to serve these youth mm-hmm.
1: yeah and I agree I agree with you Rick I think that largely creating an effective holding environment is an act of authority but I think it can also be uh, you know it's certainly an act of leadership as well and it and it doesn't always require authority um while titles, You know, and and social constructs are important. Um, You know, I've also seen cases where folks um, at lower levels of authority in organizations actually work upwards to create Mm -hmm. dynamics where senior leaders open up, they share the context, they support mission and vision and values. Um, These sound like soft skills, but they're very tangible, right? Right. And and those micro and multitudinous interventions that we can have, even if we're younger in our organizational trajectory, uh, to influence the broader, broader context is they're, they're actually meaningful. They, it may feel slow in some cases, right. But it's meaningful. And I, I, you know, I had a personal experience with this, um, with a disruptive product company, uh, that was deploying electronic solutions for water conservation. Um, we were competing against multi-billion dollar chemical conglomerates and making traction in that was a battle that felt never ending. Right. And you, what what you re- began to realize is that change is incremental. It's little, it happens over time. Um, not, not what we always want to hear in an instant gratification, get it now society. Right. But I mean, look at the women's suffrage movement that took 90 years to come to fruition. Right. In 1921. So uh, it's some of the, some of this takes time, <laughs> right? Well, the bigger the problem, sometimes it takes more time.
0: Yeah. I think it's important that uh, as you say, Social change; these kinds of complex issues. Uh, I think the progress that's made is dependent on uh, chalking up lots of small wins cumulatively, and suddenly the system tips. It seems suddenly, but really it was never sudden. It took a long right. time. All right, so, the turns. Yep. So, so let's. Uh, I want to turn the. I want to turn the tables uh, here a little bit in the time we have left. Oh, <laughs> and uh, yeah, it, I don't know if it's an O, but we're going to talk about you. Uh, oh boy. So. Um, So you've had lots of experience in the role of leading, even before you had the opportunity at Chambers Leadership Associate to directly uh, apply some of the principles of leading that you've learned both at Harvard and other places. Uh, So therefore, you're a seasoned leader. Mm -hmm. Uh, So as you said, and I agree with, uh, we learn a lot more from our failures than we do our successes So one of the base questions in this podcast is to ask each guest uh, to share an example or two of a leadership failure that you've had and what you personally learned from it and how it personally uh, informed how you operate in the future.
1: Yeah. Great. Well, I have about 400 examples that I'm happy to share too, but we may only have, as you say, we may only have time for one or two. Um, Yeah. I I think there's, I think there's a couple that I could point to that are significant in my learning that, you know, the time are very painful, but in retrospect, you say, God, thank God I learned that. Um, And I learned it in a context where I survived to fight another day. Um, One of those, uh, and I might reference my corporate life here, but one of the, uh, let let me back up. They fall under two common themes. And so there's actually multiple mistakes in each bucket. The first is um, identifying what the work is. I so, so, let' so back- I tell you, what,
0: tell you what, let's save yeah. those for the end. Tell the okay. story first and then story make a the connection to this.
1: Yeah, sure. So, so, um, I mentioned this, this technology company that was applying uh, electronic solutions, um, for water conservation in industrial applications. And we were competing against chemical conglomerates. Um, this, this organization was run by, uh, the head of this family portfolio of companies. And this was an individual who, uh, you know, really, for lack of better words, was very headstrong in his approach to uh, to organizational life. And I was young enough in my career that I actually still uh, bowed down to authority a little too much. Um, and so uh, multiple instances of really not moving the ball forward because I deferred to decisions made by a senior authority, right, to which actually slowed the organizational growth down. So these could be seen in, you know, hiring missed, missed decisions, um, decisions on go-to-market strategy. So this is a for-profit context, right? Um, missed decisions, both in timing and application around, um, uh, around product development and design. I mean, mm-hmm. a lot of missed decisions. And in many cases, because I assumed incorrectly that this individual with more experience, more authority, um, knew, knew the market, knew what they were talking about, right? Actually, I was closer to the market. I was closer to the problem. Um, I had less authority, but I, I had a greater clarity on the context of, of the issue and the challenge. So I can count, you know, four or five of those issues related to not moving fast enough, not pushing hard enough.
0: So right? what did not- what, what, and what did you learn about yourself? Forget him for the yeah. moment, yeah. Because I'm guessing there's some similarity to this situation that happened back in time. Big That's time how it is for well, us. Right? So what, yeah. what what did Max learn about himself, and and how is that informed? How when you come up against that again, what, what's different now? But start with the person. What what did it?
1: Okay, so it's you know it's really awkward talking about yourself, but this is linked certainly to um, my childhood, and for context here. You know, my father, I'm the third of four kids, um, second born male. My father, first generation Italian, American, um, very loud, right? In an Italian family, you know, you, you, you speak first and apologize later, right? Uh, the loudest voice wins, right? You, you, you address things as they surface, right? My wife's family from an English background does the opposite. We sweep things on. She sweeps things under the rugs, right? So very different. And um, our, my childhood was marked by just a very extreme authority figure, right? And so my response to that rather than to, to rebel was to actually bow down to that, right? And to, and to provide uh, a sense of deference, o- overly so, right? Which inhibited the movements that I took in my own life at many stages of my career and even personal life. Hmm. So I think, you know, you get hit upside the head enough to realize that, hey, I'm, something's not right here. Something's not working well. You know, I I know that this is wrong, whether it's a a boss or an executive decision for a strategy meeting, um, and you don't speak up. And so, I've learned over the last, you know, 15 years that speaking up is a very powerful and important thing to do. And of course, it comes with risk, right? But part of my background is is as an actor. I, I did a lot of Shakespearean acting at one stage, and you can't hide when you're on the stage. Right. So these things in my own personal life, I think have, have culminated in this idea that, uh, I can have a healthy dialogue that might threaten authority, but that can, that can serve to, to provide uh movement for the organization of or the mission.
0: Great. Uh, great. So, yeah, does so that yeah, that's, that's fantastic. So, uh we're almost at the end here, so I'm going to sure. give you a chance to, um, share your counsel and advice. So if we imagine that there are people who are listening here who are a little further back on the road of leading than you or and I are, uh, right. and they're listening and they're wondering what can they do to move themselves along in their practice? How, what, what's a, 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 an idea or a concept that they could work on? What's a couple of pieces of advice that you have for those people that could help them stay the course and keep moving in their journey of leading? Great.
1: Uh maybe two. I'll offer two. So one is explore and discover your HBU. HBU is an acronym. Yeah, HBU. It's an acronym that I use for highest and best use. It's actually a term in real estate. Right. So imagine uh imagine a a, a single three-bedroom house in a residential uh in a downtown urban core, right? Um, if a developer is gonna come along and rip that out, they're not gonna build another house, they're gonna build a high rise right? Because the, the value of that property is different, right? So we call that highest and best use. That requires an element of self-discovery, right? And so for those of us that are post-college or have gone to college or are in college or in our first career, which by the way is often a brutal experience, right? Discovering ourselves in the context of a professional environment, um, getting and accumulating data around our highest and best use, right? Okay. The skill sets, the passions, the interests, that help us show up in a way that creates meaning for other people. That's a really fundamental and, and kind of self-centric um, requirement for effective leadership, I believe, right? Know, know thyself is, is the famous Greek, English translation of the Greek, nothecion, right? Which is know thyself, understand your highest and best use. Um, and that that's not you know, a one and done thing. Um, I think understanding my highest and best use as an educator of adults, right? As a as a person who reconciles and builds bridges for people. That was a 20 year process. You know, always felt it and knew it, but but had to collect data, right? Um, you, I may you, not you,
0: you, you dare use the word was like it's all in the past tense. I think we're still <laughs> right. interesting,
1: man. Going, for, <laughs> sure. for sure, no question. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then if I think there's there's a second set, you know, of uh, of ideas that I would suggest for folks is um and maybe, dare say, is is a secret to life. I don't know, but this this fine line balance between being highly intentional in our lives and and yielding enough to allow the universe to, you know, to to open up in unique ways. Um, folks that are overly ambitious and highly uh, or excessively intentional often miss opportunities, right? Yeah. Folks that are too passive actually don't deploy enough intentionality to. To pursue their interests and their dreams, so that is to say, become intentional with your decisions. Right, Um, make good decisions, but if they're not good decisions, then at least make them intentional. Don't don't be passively deciding things in your life that impact uh, how you show up in the world. Because when we when we're intentional, Rick, as you know, right, this developmental journey um, becomes uh, more apparent to us. We see the progress that we make, and typically we make more progress relative to where we want to go. So discover your HBU, become intentional with how you show up. And that includes, you know, for those of us later in in later stages of our career, um, becoming intentional is also an act of leadership, right? We may not always get it right, but if we're intentional, then at least we've, you know, we've made an informed decision, right? And that's always better than a misinformed decision. So in my mind,
0: all right, well, Hey, so we are at the end, although, um, we barely scratch the surface of a lot of stuff that uh, I think we both view as important thoughts and ideas about how to lead. So there's, uh, in, in all likelihood, a part two lurking out there, just so you know. Fine. So in the meantime, between part one and part two, thank you for uh, making time to come into the swamp and share your thoughts and ideas. And uh, we look forward to part two.
1: Rick, truly a pleasure. And um, as you can tell by my enthusiasm and excitement, I, I love these conversations and I love that you're creating a platform to have them. So thanks for having me.
0: You are welcome and make it a good day. Take care. Take care.